Titus 3, beginning in verse 3. Let us hear the word of God. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. All right. Well, as um, Paul has uh, given us in these first couple verses of the chapter, he has instructed us regarding how we should live as believers in society. And simply, we are to be good citizens. But, of course, according to what the Bible means by that, not necessarily what our state may say. Uh, We are to uh, be godly in all that we do as we relate even to unbelievers. But we must also meet salt and light. Furthermore, we should be prophetic as Christians, as a church, by holding the magistrate accountable to do what God has told him he must do, and when he doesn't, we should uh, tell him such. Um, and so uh, we should be godly, but we should be transforming the culture around us. Now, <clears throat> there are several reasons why we should do this. Obviously, we're commanded to do it. And in particular, we are to love our neighbor. That command certainly applies here in this way. We are also to do it as a witness. We should witness to those around us by how we live in society. Um, We should do these things because of God's common grace. Because God has shown grace commonly, generally, to all people, even unbelievers. So we should relate in this way uh, to those around us. Now, for all the truth in those reasons, Paul emphasizes yet another. Here in verses 3 to 8, he emphasizes God's grace to us. And so because of God's grace to us, we then should live in such a way in society as he's described here for us in the first two verses. So with that in mind, let's look then at verse 3. Verse 3 says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. First of all, notice his emphasis. We ourselves also. Translation may say it a little differently there, but he is clearly emphasizing his point. Um, We are saved. And it's not because we were or are good people. We were as ungodly as the unbeliever around us, even those of us who are born in the church. The difference is our outward behaviors may not be quite as bad as somebody else's, but we're still not perfect. And so according to God's standard, 
we are not really that much different than the unbeliever. Notice also how Paul is including himself here. We, he doesn't say you, but we. So Paul and Titus and, in fact, all believers. <clears throat> Paul, as we've talked about <clears throat> excuse me, in Romans, uh, basically we could describe him as the best Israelite. And the description there in Philippians 3 and so forth. Uh, and yet even he was far from perfect, as he readily admits. So we as people who have grown up inside the church, and we haven't known anything different than that, we may not be as bad as an unbeliever out there, but we're still wretched and sinful. And so Paul includes himself, all of us. We were these things. Um, again, maybe not as bad as others, but it's still there. So Paul lists for us here seven different vices, and he puts some together here. Uh, so first of all, he says, we were once foolish. And obviously, this emphasizes being without understanding, uh, but the Bible emphasizes this in a spiritual way. And so we are without understanding spiritually. We are mindless when it comes to the things of God, we make unintelligent decisions regarding God and godliness. And certainly this is true for everyone, even the nicest person in the church who is not yet converted. We make foolish decisions. Now, if you turn back a few pages to 1 Timothy chapter 6, <clears throat> and uh, in verse 9, Paul is speaking of the wealthy here, but nobody says. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. And so whether we're chasing after wealth or not, um, we too, Paul says, seek after foolish things, and it drowns us in destruction. So this is the way we were before our conversion. <clears throat> and all of us certainly can think of ways where we have been foolish prior to our conversion and even after it. We are certainly not immune after our conversion. All right, now the second word that Paul gives us here is disobedient. Okay? Pretty straightforward meaning here. We are rebellious. We're against the law. We are resistant to the law, resistant to obeying authority. So if you turn back to chapter 1 here in Titus, verse 16, here he is talking about those in the church and uses the word, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So again, Paul, as he uses these terms, he's not just talking about the guy that goes down to the bar. He's not just people who are marching in pride parades this month or doing drag shows. He's not just talking about those people being disobedient, but even those who are in the church, and in this case here in 116, those who claim to be Christians, even very committed and strong Christians. He calls them there disobedient, and he says that we used to be that way as well before our conversion. And so... <clears throat> All of us, of course, have been resistant to the authority of God, of our parents, <clears throat> teachers, the magistrate, so on and so forth. We've all had moments of rebellion. Some of us may be more than others, but we've all had them. Next, he uses the term deceived. <clears throat> and this simply means to be led astray, to be deluded, to be misguided. We have followed after false teaching 
and false behavior in one way or another. If you turn forward now a few pages to Hebrews 3, here's an example of this word somewhere else. In Hebrews chapter 3, this is a quotation from Psalm 95, and the author of the Hebrews uh, makes reference to it. Note verse 10, Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So in this context, you see that um, it isn't just that we go astray in our outward behaviors. But prior to conversion, we are going astray within, too, in our thinking, in our beliefs, in our ideas. And certainly, as we consider the culture in which we live, every one of us here has gone astray following after the teachings of the culture. The question is, are we aware of it, and in what ways? Not if, but we do. We, we can't avoid it, no matter how much people may try. Certainly, with all of our media, now with smartphones and so on and so forth, we all have been influenced and led astray um, and deceived. And just simply, <clears throat> the desire to fit in and be cool and be accepted and liked and so on and so forth. All these things are deceptive and lead us astray. Um, <clears throat> All right, now, the next one is uh, a clause here. He says, New King James says it, serving various lusts and pleasures. The idea here is one of slavery. We are enslaved to sinful passions. The word there is the word in Greek that we use uh, in English as a hedonist or hedonism. Okay. And so prior to our conversion, Paul says that we were gratifying our sinful lusts. Again, maybe some more than others. And so this can be in the heart, as Jesus makes plain in Matthew 5. It can be our outward behaviors and so forth. If you turn now to 2 Peter chapter 2, here's an example of, of this here elsewhere. In 2 Peter 2, <clears throat> 2 Peter 2. And start in verse 12. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, <clears throat> carousing in their own deceptions, while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, and so forth here. So this one is not limited to sexual things, but certainly that is the emphasis. And prior to conversion, uh, many of us indulged in these things, maybe through pornography, maybe through sexual sins, uh, maybe in our actions, certainly in our hearts and minds. But notice again, he uses, he begins this clause here with the verb to be enslaved. These lusts can become very insatiable, these passions can bring pleasure for a moment, but they leave us in bondage, <clears throat> destroying lives and homes, or at least greatly uh, bringing many, many problems. Okay. <clears throat> and certainly, uh, this is true for many of us, and uh, in some ways all of us, for we all struggle and, with uh, lustful thoughts and so forth. Now, again, <clears throat> the point that Paul's trying to make here is we used to do these things before we were converted. 
We certainly can make the point that we still struggle with these things, even as Christians. Uh, We could take this list and say, well, we should not do these things. But that's not Paul's point here. His point is that life apart from Christ, uh, life without God, leaves us mentally and morally depraved, without sense, deceived, enslaved, to sin, Satan, and the things of the world. Certainly, this includes our outward behaviors and words, but at the very least, it happens within. So as, as we are here today, I think probably most, if not all of us, have grown up in the church. And it's easy for us to sit here and think, well, yeah, those people out there. But again, Paul's including himself, and we should here as well. All right, now, <clears throat> these uh, four basically go together. The next three also go together here in this way. The next ones we see are living in malice and envy. See, again, this is a clause that goes together. Our lives apart from God uh, were filled with malice and envy. Malice here is the idea of being hateful, desiring evil to others, and doing evil to others. Um, Surely all of us uh, have done something mean to someone else. Or at the very least, we are glad when something bad happened to someone else because we don't like them or something like that. Uh, If you turn to Ephesians here a moment, chapter 4, here's an example of this word used elsewhere. In Ephesians 4, here at the end of the chapter, verse 31, here now Paul's telling us not to do these things. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Okay. So even as believers, he says, to avoid this. Um, now, the word for envy, uh, this obviously has the idea of jealousy, being envious. Here's where we are getting upset when someone else is blessed. We're not merely desiring what they have. That's coveting. Enviousness and and jealousy are uh, a desire to uh, not just have what they have, but be upset because they have it and when they get more. We are resentful when they are successful. And so it's certainly similar to coveting, but it has this added dimension. So back to 1 Timothy again, uh, again chapter 6. Um, This time, uh, verse 4, Paul says, um, He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, and so forth. Again, these are talking about, Paul's talking about false teachers here. So again, people in the church, not just outside of it. All right, now the sixth word that Paul gives uh, here in Titus 3 is, uh, as the New King James says, hateful. Uh, Your translation may have a different word here. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament, so there is a little debate on how to take it. Um, uh, Are we being hateful and detesting others? Is that the idea? Well, if so, then it's very much like uh, malice. Or does it mean that we are loathsome, we are despicable, we are odious, we stink to other people because of how 
we treat them. And thus, the emphasis here is being hated by others because of how we're behaving. Okay? So instead of the fruit of the Spirit and everybody is blessed by our presence, okay, it's the opposite. People don't like to be around us because of how we behave and so forth. Okay? Um, I'm inclined to think that that's the emphasis here, uh, agreeing with the, the scholar. Uh, certain group of scholars in that way. Um, and so uh, being hated because you're a jerk, more or less, is the point. Okay, we used to do that, and many times we still do that. Now the last one, then, is um, hating one another. Okay, it is a different word from the previous word. This is one of the reasons why I go the direction I do with that previous word. Uh, but this one emphasizes hating other people. Uh, being hostile, being cruel, being mean. Um, likely, um, we are dis, uh, disliked by someone else uh, here, as well as we are disliking other people, as these are these last two words. And so, uh, surely all of us have done that, at least in our hearts. Maybe we even said we, we hate you because of, uh, you know, directly to someone because of something that has happened. Um, now let me pause here a moment and uh, just address our culture's definition of hate. Um, unfortunately, it has taken on a very specific meaning. And uh, to be a hater in our culture is to basically not agree with anything that the liberal left says. Um, and that may seem like a simple answer, but that's pretty much where we are. If you are against abortion, you hate women. If you're against illegal immigration, you're xenophobic and you hate uh, people you know, you know, from other countries or whatever. Uh, if you are not standing up for Pride Month and all this sort of thing, then you're a hater, you're a homophobe and so forth. And this is what they emphasize. Um, but to hate simply means to not just dislike someone, but want harm to happen to them. And certainly we can be hateful in our opposition to sin, but just because we're saying something is wrong, and even just something we disagree with, doesn't mean we're a hater. Uh, but that's where we are in our culture. If you disagree, you're a hater, period, the end. And there's no conversation, no discussion. But that is a hateful response. Well, Paul's point here is, like I've said, this is what has described us prior to our conversion. Some of us, yes, maybe, uh, here seated here, those maybe listening online or whatever, some people certainly have grown up outside of the church and did many of these things, maybe uh, to terrible degree. Um, most of us here, if not all of us, have grown up in the church, but we still have done these sinful things, at least in our hearts. We have been antisocial, we have been detestable, we have been hateful, destructive, chaotic. Okay. We have been awful compared to God's standards. Maybe we're better than the person beside us, but we are not compared to God. Okay. And that's Paul's point. <clears throat> 
Now note also this as a final thought in this verse. You see how he's in some ways comparing us to verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, we are to be submissive. Here he says, instead, we are foolish. He tells us to be obedient in verse 1. Rather, we are disobedient. Uh, He says that we are to do good, verse 1, but we've been enslaved by evil. In verse 2, we are to be peaceable. We are to be kind. Instead, we have been filled with malice and envy. Instead of being humble and gentle, verse 2, we are hostile and so on. Uh, None of us were good outwardly, certainly in the heart, until God saved us. Now, this doesn't mean, though, that we've automatically changed. We are declared to be righteous, but we're still terrible wretches. And yet, there is a fundamental change because God saved us. His spirit works within us, and that's what Paul is going to go on to say here. But his point is... Because God has done this for us, we must relate well to the unbelievers around us. All right, well, let me now transition to verses 4 to 7 and uh, bring in Paul's next point. Uh, This is one long sentence in the Greek, which actually in Greek this isn't very long, but it's um, long here for most of what we do. So verses 4 to 7 is one sentence, and it's hard to uh, break this down uh, in this particular case. And so I, I've done again, if you have uh, an outline on the back here, uh, the, on the back table, I've, I've done again what I've done two other times so far here in, in Titus, and uh, that's given you a, a sentence structure. It's not a diagram per se, but a sentence structure to help us to see how uh, Paul's thought fits together. And uh, so verse 3 again, right? We all used to do these things as unbelievers. But now you see his train of thought. When the kindness and love for man of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. But that's not found until verse 5. And so that's the main point. We used to be like this, but God saved us. He appeared and saved us. Now, there are two lines that precede that, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, rather according to his mercy. Those two precede saved. Then you have one that follows through, and there are two parts to that, through the washing of regeneration and through the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So uh, all of this surrounds he saved us. Next, Paul expands on the Holy Spirit. The renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us abundantly. And then we have through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, he ends with a purpose. And uh, frankly, I wasn't quite sure where to put this. I thought about putting it over further to the left. Because it seems like this purpose isn't just flowing out of the giving of the Spirit, but the reason why he saved us. Uh, But you could take it either way, and ultimately it's pointing us to the same thing. But the purpose why God saved us through the Spirit, whom uh, was poured out through Christ, is that we might become heirs. 
Okay? We may, might become heirs of the kingdom. Okay? We weren't. <clears throat> we were these awful wretches doing these terrible things. But he saved us that we might become his children, heirs in his kingdom. And then notice how he has two phrases flowing out of that. Having been justified by his grace and then according to the hope of eternal life. All right, so as I did in chapter 1 and again in chapter 2, here is uh, a sentence structure just to help us to see Paul's flow of thought here. All right, so let's focus on the main point uh, as we transition into verses 4 and 5 here tonight, and then we'll fill in with some of these other phrases as Uh, when I return. So the first thing is notice the contrasting conjunction here, but, but this used to be how we were, verse three. We were once like this, but something changed. And notice that Paul then uses this chronological word here, when, when, Something happened in time, something happened in history, something happened in my life, he says. And that's true, of course, for all believers. Well, what happened? Well, the kindness and love of God appeared. Now, you may remember in chapter 2, if you look at verse 11, he says something very similar there. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Notice, grace appeared. Now we have kindness appeared. Love for man appeared. But we're not just talking about attributes or even actions. We're talking about, ultimately, a person. Because we could go all the way back to Genesis 3, and we can see the grace of God appearing right after Adam and Eve sinned. As soon as they did, and they're covering themselves and hiding and so forth, God comes to them. He doesn't strike them down. He asks questions. And even when they own up to their sin, he doesn't just, you know, strike them down and start over again. There is punishment, yes. They are kicked out of the garden. But he clothes them with the skin of a substitute through the shedding of blood first. And so we see the grace of God from the beginning. It appeared then for the first time, you might say. Um, Likewise, God has shown kindness and love for humanity from the beginning. Think, uh, for example, of Cain and Abel. Uh, Even after Cain killed his brother, God showed kindness to him. He put a mark on his forehead so no one would treat him poorly. He he told him to wander around, and, and Cain disobeyed, and, and yet he was still blessed. He had lots of food and clothing, and he built cities and all these wonderful things. He was probably uh, pretty wealthy from what we gather here. Um, but you see God's kindness and goodness and, and love and grace from the very beginning of the scriptures. So Paul is not just talking about these things. He's talking about someone appearing Just like in 2.11, Paul's referring here ultimately to Christ, and in particular, the first coming of Christ. Remember in chapter 2, he talks about the first and second coming. Here, he is talking about the first coming of Christ. God's grace, his kindness, his love appeared when Jesus came. 
And so God's unmerited favor, his goodness, rather than wrath for our sins, he showed us kindness. Rather than punishing us, he showed care and generosity and philanthropy. Uh, The word here, love for man, is the Greek word that we get, comes right into English, philanthropy or philanthropist. And so God's goodness prompted him to save us, is Paul's point. So um, let let me make a couple uh, caveats here, or maybe the better word is just going off a little bit uh, on on a, a side point here. Uh, This term philanthropy was used by the Greek moralists. We've talked about some of this as we've gone through Titus. Some of the words that uh, we're used to um, were very common in the first century outside of the church. And this was one of them. And the Greek moralists um, would go around as uh, seeking to encourage sympathy and compassion to our fellow man. Especially those who are bound in sinful passions and lusts. And so Paul, of course, just referenced that in verse 3. And so to be a philanthropist is not just to give money so you can get your name on a plaque or something. Uh, Being a philanthropist is you actually are helping people who are in need. Well, Paul is saying, okay, um, our ultimate example of this is God. It's not some moral person It's not someone who wants to make a name for themselves. God ultimately is our philanthropist. He is the one who has come to us as we were bound in our passions and our sins and saved us from our bondage. And this is all of grace. And surely this is God's kindness to us. It is all of God's doing. We cannot do it. You notice that both of the hymns here tonight are based on Titus 3 verse 5. And that's the idea. It's not what our hands have done. It's not what we do. It is what God has done. We were in chains to sin. And yet God came and kindly and lovingly pitied us, showed benevolence, and was philanthropic and set us free, saving us from the judgment we deserve and from the the end of, um, of our sin being judgment. Now, another aspect to all of this is um, uh, this word, as well as the word kindness and the word savior, as I've already talked about before, uh, these words were used in the first century for kings and rulers. And so Caesar was the philanthropist. Caesar was the savior and so on and so forth. But Paul here again is saying, wait a second here. This is a polemic is the term we use, right? You say that is true, but no, it is not. This is what is true. Caesar is not the philanthropist. God is. Caesar is not the savior. Jesus is. Only God truly saves us from our bondage and sin. Now, don't we have the same thing today? Right? Our rulers call themselves civil servants, philanthropists they're helping they're benefiting well yeah they're taking money from someone else to give to someone they like but you know it's for the common good we are told 
But most of these rulers are just greedy, power-hungry, abusive, and evil, and wicked. But our God is the true Savior with genuine kindness, genuine love. He came to us. He has set us free from our bondage. He punished our sin in Christ. He accepted his righteousness and perfection for us. And he's restored us to himself to be in right relationship with him as his children. All these other rulers are just frauds in the end. Only God saves us. And so again, don't just read these words in the abstract. These words would have conjured up all these thoughts and ideas in the first century. And Paul is saying this as a clear contrast to those human rulers. All right, well, back to our point then, simply. Since God has treated us this way, we should do the same thing toward the unbelievers around us. Let us be kind and loving, generous, patient, good, the things we talked about in verses 1 and 2. And the reason why we should do it, that Paul emphasizes here, is because of his grace in saving us. And let's not just show these things to family and friends. Let's not just show these things to those who are likable and nice people, but even those who are covered in tattoos and have blue hair and dress inappropriately and so on and so forth. Those who are rude at the store, those who are unkind to us and butt in line or something like that right in front of us. Those who hold to the crazy liberal ideas like gender identity and restorative justice and so on and so forth. Show kindness even to these people, Paul is saying. Our social ethics are motivated by God's grace in saving us. God has been kind to his enemies, that is us, so let's do the same thing. God's love towards sinful humans like you and me should motivate us to show the same kind of love to others. Show mercy to the helpless sinner around you. Be grace to the undeserving neighbor. Be gracious to them. Love your neighbor because God loved us. Now let's uh, uh, look at a few passages here in conclusion. Let's turn first to Romans chapter 5. Obviously these ideas are not unique to Titus 3. In Romans 5, (coughs) and let's begin in verse 6, Paul says this, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were his enemies. And yet he did this. No, verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For when we were enemies, we are reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Let's turn then to 1 Timothy and chapter 1. Beginning in verse 12, 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. 
I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I in chief. So obviously, as we saw there in verse 3, Paul includes himself uh, in this description of sinfulness. But God showed him mercy, and he's shown us mercy, so may that impact how we relate even to the unbeliever. Let me end here by having us turn to Matthew chapter 1. And this may seem rather odd, but hear me out. In Matthew 1, let's start our reading in verse 2. Matthew 1, verse 2. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Peretz and Zerah by Tamar, Peretz and Hetzron, and Hetzron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. <clears throat> now let me say it a little bit differently here. Uh, the pagan moon worshiper begot the man who refused to do what God told him to do, and that man begot a deceiver who had four wives. And that man begot a man who married a Canaanite. And she is in the line of promise in this way. Okay. And we can jump down to verse 5. Salmon begot Boaz by a prostitute. And Boaz begot Obed by a Moabitess. And Jesse begot a man who committed adultery and murder. But if we look down at verse 22, um, it says, so all, um, sorry, verse 21, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for you will save his people from their sins. Okay. These men and women uh, very much fit with Titus 3 verse 3. And again, it's a description of us too. And yet God has come to save us. Now his point here isn't, Paul's point, isn't just to talk about this in the abstract, but to motivate us to love the people around us who don't know him. And so here's our point. And uh, here in a couple weeks, we'll pick up with this and kind of fill in around the main idea of God saving us. So let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father, our God, we thank you for uh, your word to us. Uh, we thank you <clears throat> that you have saved us, that you have not left us in our sin, that you have not treated us as we deserve, but have graciously, kindly, lovingly, benevolently, as our uh, cosmic philanthropist, as it were, you have uh, brought us salvation, salvation from the judgment that we deserve for our sinfulness. Um, we are thankful, Lord, that whether we are 
um, the worst of sinners in uh, in the sense of like Hitler, Hitler or Stalin or Mao or something like that, <clears throat> or whether we um, are pretty good people, we are thankful, Lord, that you have not um, punished us as we deserve, but you have saved us through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, uh, may this bring great encouragement to us, but may it also then motivate us and uh, drive us as we relate to those around us. May we not just be offended or put off or um, avoid the, the, the rotten sinners around us, but may your grace to us motivate us to speak to them and, and love them and be kind to them. And so, Lord, we pray for your mercies in this way and give us strength by your spirit, we pray, uh, to, to give us boldness and courage and, and love and care uh, for those around us. So, Lord, we uh, pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.